Hello everyone, I'm Adrian Beck, children's author, and I'm taking over Words and Nerds, finally. Well, I've done it before, but I'm always excited when I get to do it. And today we're talking to one of my great mates, Asterix, Tristan Banks. Tristan, he has been a storyteller ever since he can remember, behind the camera, in front of the camera, on the keyboard, on stage, if you don't mind. You name it, Tristan does it. He's written piles of books, including Two Wolves, The Fall, Detention, Cop and Robber, Ginger Megs, and the Tom Weekly series, many of which have won swags of awards. And today he joins me to discuss his latest book, his latest blockbuster, if you don't mind, Scar Town. Tristan Banks, welcome to this takeover episode of Words of Nerds. Man, that intro was amazing. And when you said um, one of my great mates, Asterix, I thought you knew Asterix. <laughs> and I was like, wow. Oh, that's amazing. And I, I finally had respect for you, but uh, no, no, no that, you, it was fleeting respect. Uh, and I was much more of a Obelix <laughs> fan, I have to be honest. <laughs> um, oh, really? Yeah, weren't you? Yeah, I like, yeah, I did like a bit of Obelix. I must say, I did like Tintin more than the Asterix comics. Did you, or were you more of an I Asterix? I was more fan? of an Asterix sort of, sort of operator, but um, I liked both. I did like both, but I think it, it all, it all was dependent on our library, which had, you know, the occasional copy of Tintin and just wall to wall Asterix. So I think it was oh, just availability. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a Tintin fan from way back. I actually think, you know, my love of, and I loved Hardy Boys as well. I actually think those things were influences on me. I always liked this kind of crime mystery thrillery sort of um, story. So there's a lot of Hardy Boys in, uh, in everything that you've been writing recently, isn't there? I think so. Yeah. I occasionally dip back into a bit of Hardy Boys. I don't, I'm not as um, in love with it as I was when I was a kid, but I, the mm. TV series is actually pretty good. I've, I've recently watched um, a bit of the Hardy Boys. T There's a new TV series and it's pretty good. There you go. Shout out to the new TV series. Get on board Hardy Boys. <laughs> well, tell us about Scar Town. It's got a little bit of Hardy Boys sort of vibe running through it. It's your latest book for those who haven't had a chance to check it out. What can you tell us about it? It is about a drowned town called Scarborough and they drowned the old town for a hydroelectric scheme, built the new town on the banks. And it's the, a drought has come and there's a hole in the damn wall and the water level's going down. And these three kids swim out to a house that's sort of semi-submerged in the lake and they go inside and they wade through the house, you know, waist deep in water down the hallway go up the stairs to the attic and in the attic, there's a wall that's kind of partially rotted away because it, it's been underwater for seven years. And inside the wall, they find a whole bunch of money stacked up in wrapped in plastic and, uh, and some bones. And they have to try to work out, can they keep the money, um, who the bones belong to. And as they start to ask questions around town, they start to stir up all these secrets from before the town was sunk. Mm, it's a great premise. And this book, I can remember you talking about this book years ago. I think we were talking maybe. We were kids. Yeah, that's right. It's an autobiography. Now you were talking about this for years. This has been a long gestation, Scar Town. Is that fair to say? Yes. So I had I had this great idea that a short story that I wrote in two thousand and nine. In two thousand and ten, I thought I'm going to write the novel of that because it's going to be so much easier because I've already got the characters and the setting and stuff. So I'll just knock it out. And then 13 years later, I'm still, uh, I was, but I couldn't leave it alone. It was one of those things where you'd try a draft and then I'd have to go and write something else. And then next year I'd come back and I'd try another draft and wouldn't quite get there, go, you know, go write another book, come back again. And I just couldn't get this story out of my head. It just kept on, it was haunting me. So, um, you know, and eventually, you know, over the last couple of years, I worked out a way to tell it that I was happy with. What was the stumbling block? What, what was holding you back from finishing it off? 
I've, I was thinking about it recently and I think I've worked out that I didn't have the ending before I began. I realized that most often when I've written Two Wolves or The Fall or Detention or Cop and Robber, I sort of had an idea of what the climactic uh, scene was going to be, whether there was going to be a crime or whatever. Um, but I actually, on this one, I think I was writing to find the ending and I just, I just couldn't find it. I couldn't mm. discover it. I couldn't get to the end of the story. I'd always sort of get halfway through or three quarters of the way through and then peter out. So I think it really helps when you're writing to have an end in mind. Um, doesn't always happen, but it, it really does help the writing process if you do have that. Absolutely, like a finishing line that you're, uh, that you're aiming for. Yeah, and I like to follow my nose when I'm writing in order to get there. I don't have everything mapped out step by step, but if I just have a sniff or a sense of what that ending is, it, it helps guide that that kind of journey, uh, the winding journey to, to make your way to get there. The long and winding road, Paul. Um, so the concept of the sunken town uh, is kind of slightly different to the, almost the hook, which is what they find in the sunken town. Did you have both? Did both come to you at the same time or did you have to work on on the actual what they found? Was there a few different things that you were thinking of that they might perhaps discover when the uh, house emerges? Yeah, I think so. It actually started off with a tree, just a picture of a tree. A publisher gave me a picture of a tree, said, write a story about it. And so I, <laughs> Does that happen often? Yeah. Just gives you cue cards? Yeah, yeah, they just send me pictures just occasionally and just, you know, an elephant or a, uh, you know, a, a python. Um, and I, this, this one was a tree and and it was um, it was a whole bunch of, of authors, kids and YA authors. This was like in 2009, had to write a, a it was called Picture This, the anthology. You had to write a story um, inspired by one of these pictures. And so I wrote this story and for some reason I had this quote, I had that quote that I love um, from Stephen King's The Body. I was 12 going on 13 when I first saw a dead human being. And I had in mind my uh, ho my holidays as a kid to Jindabyne in the Snowy Mountains in New South Wales, which is one of those towns that was drowned. Um, and those two things collided with a song by the Verve called Appalachian Springs. And I was, so I was mm. listening to this song thinking about that quote, thinking about those holidays and my friendships when I was a kid. And this story uh, sort of started to emerge um, about, and it was originally they were on this mission around the lake edge to try to find their friend who had disappeared and they would get out to this tree and then they would find out, you know, is the is the, their friend, you know, alive or dead or what's, what's happened to them. Um, and slowly over 13 years, that tree uh, evolved into a house. The tree just didn't mm. seem to have enough story for a novel for me. And uh, once it was the house, I felt like there were enough secrets and there were enough interesting things that we could discover in the house that it would feed the rest of the story. Mm. It's interesting too, because the, the tree, obviously the house can emerge from the lake uh, in a very spooky and uh, suspenseful um, visual way, but a tree could just be on the side of the lake sort of thing. I mean, Australia, an emerging house is much more exciting. That was the problem. The tree was on the lake edge. And so I sort of couldn't have a whole novel that was on the edge of this drowned town, which is such an exciting thing, but it's sort of got nothing to do with the town <laughs> in a way. The secrets are coming out. But so I, this is what I was wrestling with the whole time. And once I found pictures of drowned towns with these houses half submerged there are certain pictures that i found and then i was like okay i know what this is and uh you know that visual thing is really important to me things like maps and images and stuff that that cemented in my mind make it feel real and because this has been composting for 13 years in my imagination or 14 years it really um the town feels real you know i feel like mm. i've been a resident of this town
Mm. If only the publisher had sent you a picture of a house instead of a tree, you could have cut out 13 years. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's it. I would, I'd get 13 years of my life back. That's right. um, I blame that the publishers. Much, I'm, I'm going to call that publisher, actually. Send <laughs> better pictures. That's it. We must have better pictures. Uh, now, Jindabyne, you mentioned, is that a place where you spent a lot of time as a youngster? And Because I, I, I was having a little bit of a Google and I found that there were plenty of towns around Australia that do have these, these, these amazing sunken old versions of themselves in a lake. Uh, but obviously yeah. Jindabyne as well. Uh, is that a place that's close to your heart? Yeah, I used to go on holidays there with my cousins when I was a kid. And we'd go at Easter time and, you know, Easter, it's a bit kind of cold down there and a bit foggy and stuff. And we'd go out on a boat and go fishing. And while I was out on the boat, I'd sort of look down into the water and imagine these these buildings and roads and railways and kind of lives down in, you know, in the at the bottom of this lake. And it just used to creep me out. I don't think mm. I ever sort of got it out of, out of my mind. And, and I was so intrigued by that. And it, it's interesting because when I talk, to people about this it turns out that most humans are intrigued by this thing of mm. drowned towns the same way we are about abandoned theme parks and um i don't know there's something something spooky about those sort of dreams that we had um you know like in a mall you know have you seen those shows um where they go to american malls and they're malls that you know used to be these hubs of happiness and consumerism and then now they're just like you know abandoned and mm. you know they're just skaters and you know yeah right it's like something yeah. from last of us or something yeah, exactly. I think it's just endlessly um, fascinating to humans. Absolutely. It, the sense of place is, is so well done throughout the novel. Uh, as you say, it's a little bit based on Jindabyne. It also took you a long time to kind of almost discover it through the writing. Uh, it kind of ticks that rural noir thing that everyone talks about in book selling at the moment, which is really, really popular. Um, you know, the, a, a struggling small town, country Australian small town. But I thought what was interesting, you don't often see this all that much in um, in kids' book, is that there's a little bit of a uh, theme of economic hardship that comes through too. What was, what was the thinking behind that? Was that to, just to, to cast your characters in sort of like an underdog sort of setting or did you want to tell a, a, a larger story? I don't know. Like, I guess I didn't grow up in with great wealth. I mean, we weren't, I don't think we were, we were super poor or anything, but I, I sort of, I, I like writing stories about characters who don't have it all kind of thing. I think, um, well, one, I mean, it creates greater conflict just as a, on a pure storytelling level, it makes, you know if life is challenging it, it it makes for perhaps a more interesting story to watch that character um work with what they have but i also feel that you often don't see as you're saying you often don't see much of that and i'm, I'm fascinated by what it's like for people who don't have resources trying to deal with difficult situations and it's certainly a lot harder to deal with whatever life throws up when you don't have resources to throw at, at a problem um, so yeah, I just think I'm interested in in those sort of kids. I think I, growing up in the Blue Mountains in the '80s, I didn't, I don't feel like it was a super, um, you know, wealthy and um, you know, middle class in the way that we think of middle class now. Um, and and yeah, I'm, I'm just attracted to those sort of characters. Well, you often write the good natured, uh, you know, twelve year olds sort of on the cusp of of teenager dis if that's a word i'm sure it's not teenagerhood <laughs> oh you often write those sort of characters and i once uh read about paul jennings uh, you and i are great fans of paul jennings obviously and he said um the boy in the story always felt like it was him would you say the same thing about your characters particularly scar town 
I think so. Yeah, it feels like me and my it captures some of the mood anyway of me and my friends when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, um, riding around town and, you know, looking for adventures. We had a lawn mowing business and we used to <laughs> um, push this old lawnmower around town and we end up at different people's houses and different customers and stuff. And I think we were always sort of um you know hoping for an adventure like this where we might find you know some money or some bones or i don't think we were dreaming of bones necessarily but just something <laughs> to sort of take us out of the mundanity of everyday life and we were, we loved horror movies and and so this story is sort of like a you know a, me reflecting back on that time and and what a good time it was really when you were the, i think the line between um truth and fiction was blurred then too and I really liked that the movies and books and things that we loved overlapped with our own lives in ways that are almost uh, difficult to to kind of articulate. Yeah, the um, uh, it's interesting you say it was a lot to do with your own childhood because for me, I thought there were some really and, and great influences. I really enjoyed these influences, but I thought I picked up a lot of Stand By Me and Goonies and even it yeah um and i know you're a bit of a stephen king fan and uh, the neighbor's dog was called cujo for instance um so were they are they am i correct in picking those up is that something that you were trying to sort of uh evoke a little bit as you as you went i think so just because i feel like those stories are in my blood particularly stand by me you know i loved it when i was 13 14 years old and i loved the stephen king novella the body that was based on um, I still love those things now. I read The Body semi-regularly every couple of years. I'll read it and I'll watch Stand By Me semi-regularly. And I feel like they're sort of in my DNA. You know, those stories that are so close to you, you feel like they were either made about you or you created them yourself, But even though you didn't. Um, and even if they're not an exact sort of, you know, that they don't run along the lines of your own life, somehow I just feel like I'm, I'm in Apparently, sort of connected to the to those stories. So yeah, Stand by Me, Goonies. Um, what is, what were some of the other influences? I read this great book called Fortress by Gabrielle Lord when I was in high school. We had to read it for maybe Year Eight English or Year Nine English or something um, about this group of uh, kids and their teacher in regional Victoria who are kind of kidnapped from the school and held for ransom in a cave in the bush and. Um, it was just so you know thrilling this story we loved it so much and then rachel ward made a movie of fortress as well and yeah that that and stranger things and then stephen king stuff all these things overlapped in the in the creation of this book i love the cover too the cover sort of some covers are a little bit um, deceptive and they don't quite tell a true they don't give a quite a true reflection of what the book is but i the scar town cover you probably could tell us a little bit more about um how that came about but the three kids on their bikes the lake the spooky gloomy mist and the trees it just it sums it up perfectly uh was did it take a while to sort of nail that or did that uh, just sort of deliver into your um inbox and you thought wow this is awesome it was delivered into the inbox and i thought it was awesome which Usually, um, Krista Moffat, who's the designer, she designed the Two Wolves cover and, you know, it has this sort of chunky font for Two Wolves and then a sort of scratchy kind of handwriting font for my name. And then it's uh, got a vector, a, a silhouette of a kid running. And then for the fall, there was, you know, rift on those same things, same fonts, 
um, a, a kid uh, with a dog, because uh, Sam has a dog in that book, detention, then shifted it up a bit. And each each cover changes it a bit. Cop and Robber um, shifted it in different ways, but they're all clearly of a piece. And But usually there's a couple of different covers that we're throwing around. It's like, oh, I like this one better. And what if it had this? And what if it had that? But this one, boom, Scar Town, <laughs> it, it landed in the inbox and immediate, it was the only one they sent through. Usually there might be might be two or three. And we all just went, it's fantastic. I mm. love it. It captures the mood of the story. And um, yeah, she's an amazing designer. She's doing a lot of big books at the moment, actually. So I feel really lucky that um, that she's doing mine. Yeah, it looks it looks magnificent. It's, it encapsulates the story perfectly, I think. Now, when, speaking of the story, I wanted to get into a little bit of the writing behind it. Um, obviously, this is they're all suspenseful thrillers. The the last few books that you've put out, uh, Scar Town and Two Wolves and all that uh, detention and the like. Uh, do you go into these books thinking about? Well, I need to create a cliffhangers on every on every uh, uh, at the end of every chapter, or I need to uh, <laughs> I need to make the um, uh, somehow make it fast paced so it's uh, page turning and short sentences and, and do you think about all these sort of specific things when you're writing or do you just blurt it all out and then refine it? Um, I blurt it all out but I think I have a relatively short attention span sort of thing and I need to I'm very narrative oriented like when I'm reading if I'm reading another book I need to know that there are stakes um, I need to know that I need to turn the page in order to find out what happens next. If I get halfway through a book and I realize I really don't care what happens and I don't even know what I'm supposed to be waiting for, I'll often put the book down. Um, I like for the writing process, especially when it's going to be as long as this, you need to engage yourself. So mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, those short punchy sentences and, you know, hooks at the end of each chapter that drive you through the reading. I think they help me as a writer to stay engaged. Um, they help me as a reader because I have to read the book more times than anyone in the world will ever have to read it. Um, and then I think it, I think it really helps my um, kid readers, but also my adult readers. I feel like everyone mm. um, likes to be likes to be driven through a story, and I feel like it's on me. If 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 a reader puts my book down, then it's on me because I didn't make it engaging enough. Mm. Is it a challenge to come up with a little mini cliffhanger at the end of each chapter, or does that does that come naturally? Um, I try. I do. I do it. But then I have a great editor, Claire de Medici, and she. Um, works with me to refine those those cliffies and she's fantastic at those last sentences she'll often say hey do you think we should take out those last two sentences and just end on blur and mm. you go oh blur that's amazing or <laughs> or she'll say what if there was one more line have we got one more line here where it that could refer to blank and um and yeah and we'll we'll go for it and and she'll be right so she really i i love that she helps me refine those mm. yeah I think I can hear some uh, two wolves in the background. Yeah. Actually, there's, dogs, there's there's a wolf barking in the background, and uh, there's uh, uh, doorbells ringing and things. I'm sure this is all happening at your place. Oh <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Move going on. Absolutely, mate. It's all happening. It's yeah. all happening. Um, also, I love the um, I love the the turns of phrase as well. I mean, you've got to have those short, punchy sentences. You've got to have those cliffhangers and all that sort of stuff. But um, I don't know whether these this takes a lot of um, a refining or whatever, but I saw a little, if you don't mind, I'm going to read just a couple of sentences, right. which I thought Lovely. were really, uh, really stood out to me. Um, 
So this is uh, when Will's talking about his mum early on in the book, and he says, when dad went missing and the town was drowned, I think part of her drowned too. Somewhere down inside my mother is the sunken town of who she was before, the smiling person in the photos from when I was little. Someday I hope that town starts to reveal itself again. That sort of stuff. It's so poignant. I mean, did you... Like, did you, uh, how did you do it, Tristan? Give us all your secrets. Like, did, did, is that sort of stuff just as you're going along? Do you think, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to write a little beautiful little passage here about his mum, you know, I'll just insert yeah. passage here. Or does that, is that the sort of stuff that through the reiterations, the rewriting, the constantly going over and over and over it that you, um, that you build on that every time? Or how, how does the, how do these little moments uh, arrive on the page? I think just by hanging out with the story for long enough and spending enough time with it and reacting to your previous version of it. And then you just, as you go through the next draft, you're just adjusting and adjusting and adjusting. I find that um, things like that will emerge on one of these many drafts. Mm. And if it's good enough, it'll stay in the book. Like I probably on the path to writing this 48,000 word book, I probably, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of words I would have written, but certain, certainly in the hundreds of thousands, certainly, you know, maybe especially scenes written on notepaper and stuff like that. I might've written 300,000 words or something. Mm. And most of those words are no longer in the book. So I figure when there's something like that, that pops up a description that I like, um, you've got to be careful not to get too um, stuck on those things too and say, oh, but it's really nice. I like it. I love the turn of phrase. Um, I, I'm trying to, I try to be ruthless. And even if it is nice, I'll cut it if it doesn't serve the story. Mm. But something like that, um, I certainly don't sort of go, hmm, I need a metaphor here or <laughs> what would be a simile that I can, you know, I don't, I don't, I just don't think consciously about that. I do reread and when it, I feel it's dry and the, and the text is dead on the page and it's not, elevated at all it's not painting a picture um certainly I, I go in and i sort of try to find ways to to make it sing um but i, I don't sit there necessarily thinking about you know uh grammatical ideas or, or language mm. tools um you know mm. in an explicit way but i think you know the longer you spend with the story the better it gets they can emerge they can emerge sparingly i guess um so how do, what do you feel do you feel like uh the plot uh, or the sense of place or the characters what what is uh what is the element that um that you have to work hardest at um well the setting on this one was the thing that i kept coming back to so it was always there i felt like the mood of the setting and the tone of the story was the thing that i was all I needed was to find a narrative that existed within that tone and within that setting. So that wasn't too difficult. Um, I would say the plot actually on this one was the, was the toughest thing, finding a plot that was engaging, that drove us through this, this place. And I discovered the history of the town. I knew the characters, I knew how they spoke. And I think it was the plot that eluded me which is interesting because um, I sort of learnt to write by writing screenplays and you're always taught to create a step outline. It'll be like, this happens, then this happens, then, you know, cards on a wall. Um, and I used to be a real, you know, plot it before you write it kind of guy. Um, that was probably 15 years ago or something, but I've learnt in more recent years just to dive in and, you know, just start writing and see where it takes you. Mm. Um, but sometimes that goes awry and it takes, it takes 13 um, <laughs> years. <laughs> takes slightly longer than you than you might have hoped. I do I do still think there's value in that in that kind of writing. Um when I ask in schools if it's someone's a plotter or a pantser, you know, people who are plotters, they put up their hand proudly and say, Yes, I work out 
my beginning, middle and end before I begin the story. And then Panthers kind of sheepishly sort of put up their hand to say that they, um, you know, fly above the seat of their pants and hope for the best. And they feel a bit embarrassed. But I don't think I, don't, I think I think real writers do dive in and jump. All, all kinds of writers are different, but I think there's a bravery in a way diving in and seeing what happens. It does mean you're going to spend a lot longer on the story. It does mean you're going to write many worse drafts. But along the way, you do find these little nuggets of gold um, that you can put into the story. And then I go and outline after that and try to crack the back of it. Yeah, right. Okay. So you sort of get a fair way into it and then you sort of step out and get some perspective and try and think of, you know, the nuts and bolts of how to bring it together, I guess. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then, and then dive back in. Yeah. Um, uh, you mentioned screenwriting just before. The, uh, it always fascinates me. Some authors say that they see it all in their minds, you know, and some authors say, oh, I don't think visually at all. I th- I'm, all, I'm, all I'm only thinking about words. And, and uh, to me, I, I, I'm, I'm personally, I'm the, of the, um, I'm the type that sees it all in my mind and it's all visual for me. But how is it for you? Uh, I would imagine given your screenwriting background and your drama background, all that sort of stuff, you'd be a very visual operator. I think so. Yeah, I think gathering lots of pictures. I gather heaps and heaps of pictures that and, you know, either either print stuff out or I'll create a little. Do you do like a vision board or something for these books? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's the term I usually use. And, and that takes different, like I, I work in Scrivener. So in Scrivener, you have a little bit down the bottom right there where you can throw pictures into. Yeah, and then right. you can also just drop images in that you can sort of flick through for characters and then images that you have for setting. And uh, yeah, and then I might have key images, which are out of the hundreds of pictures that I've found, I'll have these key images that might be, you know, up to 10 images that really capture what this story is about that really define it for me so that if it's been six months since I've written a draft, I'll come back, I'll look at those pictures, I'll listen to the music and it takes me back to that same tone. Mm. Um, Cause otherwise you can sort of end up coming back to it and going off on a total tangent and writing a, you know, something that didn't feel like you were what you were trying to write initially. So, so it wasn't a picture of a tree. It wasn't a, tr- a picture of a tree that was part of this. No, the no. picture of the tree still feels a bit like the story. I think, um, <laughs> you know, I still feel like that tree is growing in Scarborough in the Scarborough of, um, you know, of the finished book. Well, there are about six trees on the front. I reckon one of them might be, one of them might be it. Yeah, it could be that tree. Are you, um, do you gather pictures together when you're writing? I, I don't, but I do tend to, uh, tend to watch, um, uh, TV shows and movies and things like that of a similar ilk. So I'll try and get the vibe that way. Um, often it's kind of comedic tone as well. Uh, so if you're writing junior fiction, I end up watching a lot of, uh, you know, Pixar movies with my kids and things like that about certain animals and things like that. So, um, yeah, I do it. I'd sort of do it that way, but how do you pick your music? How do you pick your soundtracks for these books? Are they all slightly different depending or, or do you have like your thriller soundtrack and then you have like your Tom Weekly soundtrack and your ginger Meg or how does that work? Uh, they're, they're, um, pretty similar. Uh, no, they, they each have their own feeling. I think I try to make them defined cause I, I think it helps you not write the same book over and over again, if you're listening to different music as you are writing it. So I try to find music that's specific to that, to that book, but occasionally, I mean, you get bored listening to the same soundtrack over and over and over and over again, as I do when I'm, when I'm writing a particular book. So sometimes I'll dip in and, and listen to one of the other book soundtracks while I'm writing that day, just to mix it up. And because I have 
you know, that music really worked for me just as background writing music. I feel like sometimes that just gives me a little lift and it feels good to be listening to it again. And, and I go through that way, but, but pretty much I, I, I listen, I do listen to those. It can be up to 50 songs on the soundtrack kind of thing, but the, I slowly drag some into this soundtrack. And then when it's annoying and I've realized there's some really annoying guitar riff or something, I'll kick <laughs> that song out of the soundtrack and slowly over, over the years, I refine the, just the right music to listen to for that story. Perfect. Perfect. Now you do a lot of um, talking to kids in schools, which is great. And uh, I know obviously um, uh, passing on a sense of uh, storytelling and boosting literacy to the next generation. We're both big on that. Um, very important to us. Uh, when you go to schools, how has that sort of influenced your writing? Like do the kids sort of say, oh, I love this bit. It's particularly when we're talking about these thrillers and suspense books that you're that you're bringing up uh, these days. Have the kids influenced that at all? Some of their questions, some of their thoughts, some of their suggestions? Has that shaped your last yeah. few books? Definitely. And, and I mean, a couple of years before I finished this book, I was sort of starting to, or probably at various times over the years, I've sort of thrown out, you know, in a, in a talk, um, you know, what are you, what are you writing at the moment? I'll say, well, I'm trying to write this book about these kids who live on the edge of this lake with a drowned town, you know, and I'll just sort of pitch it just, just, and, and they'll either lean in and they'll be interested or they'll kind of go, huh? Yeah, that sounds good. Good on you. You go. <laughs> what else that. you got? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you, and you sort of know, and I don't immediately go, oh, okay. They leaned back. They weren't interested. I'd just go, okay, well, maybe I didn't get the pitch right. Whatever I'm, whatever I'm bringing up in that, in the way I spoke about it, maybe that's wrong. So I still go mainly on my gut and what I really want to write, but I do refine it like over the last year or so. I've been showing some of the pictures from Scar Town and I'll just do a little, a little five minute bit in my talk where I'll go, oh, in this town and dirt and they swim out and they found these money in the book. And you finally get a little sort of, um, you know, way of talking about the book that engages people and, uh, and you go, oh, okay, yeah, I've got something there. But even now, now that the book is out and I'm talking about it and I'm going into schools, um, I'm still refining the book in that I'll do a reading and they'll go, oh, and they, they, you know, they might be into it, but they're not as into it as some of my other readings have been. So I'll choose another chapter mm. and I'll read that. And then I'll realize there were certain bits where I feel you can just feel the energy of the audience sort of, um, you know, uh, move away a little bit. And then you start and then another bit where they lean in. So I might cut out that bit of the reading and I'm still sort of refining even when I even when I'm finally reading it to the to the um, yeah, to the audience in the talks. So I really like that. I, lo I love this bit of um, refining the way I'm still telling this story, even though it's on the page now, it's not done. I'm still working out new, way new ways to tell it. Mm, what about early on? Do you read uh, Do you read out to the kids any early chapters from either Scartown or any of your other books? Have you ever sort of done like, you see you see this a lot in, in films and movies and um, uh, in Hollywood, you know, the, for, the uh, what is it called? The focus groups, the focus group testing. It's almost yeah. like, have you ever read a few chapters and said, did you like that character? Or did you, did you see this bit coming yeah. or anything like that? Yeah. You say it really worked in the 12 to 13 demo, but the, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. the, the nine to tens um, found it a little bit. Um, I, I did, I was desperate. I was in a school on the Sunshine Coast on a Friday afternoon and um, I had year nines at 2 p.m., uh, on a Friday and I was like, oh no, they're going to eat me for breakfast. I don't know what I'm going to do. I didn't feel like I had anything that was sort of, perfect, you know, year right for year nines yet. And I thought, 
oh, I've got this book I'm writing the fall. And that first chapter, you know, where he sees the guy fall from the window and it starts off this mystery and the person who committed the crime sees that Sam's the sole witness and starts coming after him. I thought, I'm going to read that. And I knew that it was insane because trying out new material on year nines at 2 p.m. on a Friday afternoon is just <laughs> never a good idea. <laughs> but I was, I was, I was panicked and I was scared little man and I tried it out and they were really quiet and they listened to the whole thing. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. it's one of the happiest moments I've ever had in a talk in that mm. one, just that I survived those sort of seven minutes of the reading, but two, because then I could go, Oh, so what did you guys think of it? Which is always a scary question, but they, they seem to be interested enough. And they're like, Oh, I like that bit where that, and what does this mean? And what is that? And, and it really helped me a lot. Um, with that story and to finish the story and also just to have confidence in the fact that, you know, what I was writing didn't stink as much as I might've thought when I was just alone <laughs> by myself writing it. Uh, so, yeah. it, so it does, it helps me a lot speaking to speaking to kids. If nothing else, it's a bit of a confidence booster when you get those moments. Yeah. And, and it's okay too. I'm all right. When you try something out and it sort of doesn't work too. Like it's all, I think having that relationship with the reader, with the, with the audience for the story is is vital because potentially if you don't and if your kids aren't the, the exactly the age for your book or whatever so you don't have your in-house uh, readers and stuff i think you can get out of touch with the reader and start writing things and in language that doesn't appeal to them or that they don't understand because kids are pretty honest i think when they're listening to something they'll tell you whether they you know whether they like it or not i think yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of uh, feedback and honest feedback, you've got two sort of groups that you're have been associated with, which I noticed got some acknowledgements in the back. You've got the uber talented uh, writers group. Forgive me if I get the name wrong. Is it the uber talented? Is that what it's called? Uber talented critique group. Uber talented critique group. <laughs> it's, it's tongue in cheek. I think the uber talented bit It's trying to, you know, get uh encourage ourselves you know yeah sure sure yeah whatever you say and the other one uh is the nano gang which is obviously there's a period of the two groups uh which uh, you were a part of uh last couple of years where you've written in NaNoWriMo now was Scartown part we'll come back to the uber talented folk but was Scartown part of the nano was that what you were writing when we were all writing for NaNoWriMo yeah in 2020 2021, I, it was. I think we did 2020 and 2021, didn't yes. we? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In 2020, I was writing Cop and Robber, um, which came out last year. Um, and uh, 2021, I was working on Scar Town. And it was, it was sort of make or break in a way. I was going, okay, this book that's been driving me crazy all this time, I've got all these different versions of it in the dust behind me sort of thing. I was like, I'm going to write a draft flat out going to go for it. And this is going to be the version that I'm, you know, that I'm going to move forward with. And, uh, you know, if it hadn't worked or if I hadn't have had those 30 days where we were checking in on the podcast and stuff and hadn't had um, you guys sort of, you know, uh, Christy and Danny and yourself giving feedback and, you know, encouraging and stuff, it might, it might actually not have made it through this book. So um, <laughs> thanks for the nano yeah, well, I know I gave you a lot of uh, a lot of uh, encouragement, so I was really uh, I'm I'm glad that I got it across the line. Basically, fair to say. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's no all problem. you, mate. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Now, the, now the uber talented critique group. Uh, there's some big heavy hitters in that group too, uh, and uh, I understand you workshop the book with them quite a bit as well over the journey. Yeah, we sort of send a, it's Deborah Abella, Leon Tanner, Zanny Louise and Sarah Armstrong. And it's all, the focus is middle grade 
and critique group. So if we suddenly write an adult novel or we write a picture book or whatever, yeah, maybe this isn't the group for it, but we, if we're focusing on, you know, middle grade for probably, you know, sort of ages, you know, whatever it is, eight up to 14, um, we send a chapter each month and we each read uh, the chapters. And then we spend 15 minutes on each person's, we spend 15 minutes bantering and then 15 minutes on each person's um, story with a timer running. And we go, oh, I love this. And what about that? And oh, that's interesting. And um, that I didn't quite understand that bit. And I think that, you know, that line where you say X and then the 15 minutes is up and we move on to the next person and mm. we critique their chapter and it really helps one because um it can give you confidence in something that you didn't i never used to share my work early on i'd keep it to myself for years um here you're you're venturing stuff that's pretty raw and people are reading it and uh while they might be encouraging regardless even if it's terrible they'll also you'll also know by the amount of critique you get on it oh, okay all right it still needs work hmm. um so yeah it's a really it's a really good thing no, I never would have recommended it before necessarily, that idea of sort of throwing your work up in front of other people, especially established writers, because you don't want to be embarrassed and sh show them things that are that are not good. But um, it's a really good mix of um, encouragement and criticism. And Scartown mm. really benefited from, you know, both NaNoWriMo, uh, the Nano Gang and, and the critique group. Did the critique group, did they ever sort of like, uh, did you ever catch them turning to each other and going, Oh gosh, he's reading us another bit from Scartown. It's been thirteen years, Tristan. You know, is it, was there anything like that? <laughs> yeah. Again, again, again. They're like, it's done again Finish, with the Scartown. Come on, man. This, this is my apocalypse now. You know, this is my my hearts of darkness kind of thing where I'm just down going down the river and I just can't stop and I'm deluded and crazy and it, it did feel a little bit like that um, at some time. At some points, it felt like war at certain points and where I just, I don't know, I just had to try to make it as, as polished as it could be and um, to try to do it justice. And the fact that I had spent so long and it really felt like, um, I don't know, I, I wanted to be um, proud of it when it was done. How do you feel now it is done, now that it's out? Uh, I feel, I feel good um, hearing, you know, I've been talking to people who have been reading it and they seem to be reading it quite quickly um, and they bring up things, even though I spent that long on it, um, now that it's done, you sort of put it away in your mind. And then people mention certain things that stuck out for them in the book and you go, Oh yeah, I remember writing that, but you, I, I don't know. It's, um, uh, I feel like now it goes to the reader and it's up to them to sort of decide how they feel and, mm. and what it means to them. Mm. Um, people say, Oh, is there going to be a sequel to this one? And I'm like, Oh, I never think of uh, I never think of that actually with a with a book once it's finished I never think what happened to the characters after that last page it's it's always such an effort to get them to the last page and to make the story satisfying that the thought of then you know spending your time musing on what could happen next unless it's meant to be a series uh, yeah I never I never think of that yeah yeah well I mean that might be that might be next that might be what we find out. <laughs> <laughs> in just a moment but I was just wanted to circle back just quickly do you do you get a sense of satisfaction a sense of pride when they when these books come out I mean Two Walls was a little bit of a turning point for you you went from uh, into the sort of more suspenseful thriller sort of genre I imagine that felt like a big a big deal and now Scartown after 13 years surely it feels like and you must look at it and just feel like you've achieved something pretty big when you see that that finished book on the shelf I like that it's um that it 
it's the fifth of these books too. Somehow five seems like a good number to sort of, uh, before it was sort of, I was trying out these kinds of stories. Um, now I feel like I've written enough of them to feel, I don't know, to, to, to feel like it's a substantial um, part of what I do. Um, I've written lots of kind of younger, funnier stories too. And I really miss writing that stuff actually um, in between what I used to do was write a draft of a novel and then I'd go and write some short stories that were just funny and like crazy stuff about things that happened to me when I was a kid and making things up and um, much more sort of broad comedy and stuff and I do miss uh, doing that so I feel like um, I feel like I want to make space to do that sort of thing too just to write things that are just pure fun um, do you how do you um, uh, balance that because I know you've written heaps of funny stories um, but then you also have a thing inside you that wants to, you know, express other things. Um, how do you yeah. get that balance? It's interesting because, uh, you know, I, I think it just happens to everyone, you know, you sort of start to get pigeonholed on in certain ways. Um, and then uh, even if you might love that genre, you still think to yourself, yeah, but, you know, I'd like to try other things too. You know, I don't just want to do one thing all the time. So you can't, I can, I can totally relate to that. But it's like when you go to the movies, you don't want to just go to funny movies all the time. You sort of want to see all sorts of different yeah. things and, and being a creative it's the same thing. There's different parts of your personality that you you're trying to uh, get on the page. I think so. That's that's kind of how I approach it as well. Yeah, yeah. If I wasn't enjoying, I certainly wouldn't get like stick to a genre or something. You know, and I don't even know that these are genre. I mean, they're 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 um, you know marketed in a certain genre way. But um, my thing is that when I read crime stuff, like read adult crime. I hate it when it feels like an inverted commas crime book, you know, mm. and it's ticking the boxes and you have the murder at the beginning and then you have the, you know, the police forensics dudes come in or the FBI or whatever. I don't know. I don't like it when it feels like it's ticking boxes. I, I want something to feel like a novel. I want it to feel like something that bubbled up from, from inside someone. And yes, there may be police and yes, someone may have died or whatever, but I, I just don't like reading genre inverted commas when it's just trying to play into a genre or a market or something mm. so uh i like writing my stuff too and letting it letting it be messy and and unkempt and then slowly molding it but i i, I wouldn't like to just write in a way that was just ticking genre boxes yeah, well, that's tr that's really interesting you say that because uh, obviously there's a, quite a few funny moments in Scar Town, but particularly in Cop and Robber, that almost felt like it was a like it was <laughs> the the dad. There's so many funny moments with the bumbling dad robber that uh, it kind of ticked. Not that it was ticking a, a different box altogether, but it was kind of giving us a lot of comedy along the way of this thriller as well. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Yeah. For some reason, that one just suited comedy. Actually, I. I was talking to a publisher in the in America about it and about the idea. And I was saying, I was thinking about writing this story about a kid whose mum's a cop and his dad's a robber. And, you know, he spends half the week at each of their houses and the dad's always doing dodgy things. And the mum's always wondering what he's up to and told him the, the sort of idea for it. And he was just laughing. And I was like, oh, I didn't realise that it was funny kind of thing. I mean, I guess I did. It was a funny premise, but he was like, oh my God, cop and robber. And I was like, oh, okay, it must be funny. And then I, which made me lean into uh, the humor and try to yeah. get more humor out of the dad. Cause I love those stories about bumbling crims 
and people who um, like commit crimes, but then they give themselves up really easily. Like they'll go and make a live Instagram something and they're holding the cash <laughs> and they're still wearing what they were wearing when they committed the robbery, like four minutes ago around the corner. And then yeah. you see the police come into the back of frame and they're like watching the Instagram video and then they just arrest them. Um, all that stuff for some reason really kind of tickles me. And, and um, I tried to get that sort of stuff into Cop and Robber. Yeah, absolutely. There's plenty of that in Cop and Robber. It's awesome. Okay, so we touched on the nano thing. We touched on uh, sequels. Um, and we're touching on sort of mixing up genres, I suppose you might say. So it brings us to finish up by asking the obvious question, Tristan, where do we go next after Scar Town? Where, which, which town is next on the, uh, on the route? <laughs> well... Let me think. I was thinking of writing one called Spa Town that's sort of yes. more for um, more about women who go to, you know, the Hamptons or something like that and they just, you know, get their nails. No, not really. I'm not going to do Spa Town. That's probably for another writer. Oh, look, I think um, I, the thing that I've just done a zero draft of uh, is uh, a sequel to Two Wolves. Ooh. Um, you know, nine years ago. And I, I never necessarily necessarily thought I would do a sequel but people always ask questions about it um and when I go into a talk and they'll say okay so you know what happens to the dad who who you know did committed the crime in the story um he's still out and on the run and what happens to the money you know the money still hasn't been given back and what happens to Ben the main character who wanted to be a cop and then Olive his little sister you know they like they seem to like it, um Olive as well so I don't know. I just started asking these questions and, um, and this draft started to emerge and it's a really rough, probably 35,000 word draft of a, of a story, but I really loved it. Like it was, I feel like I got my mojo back. I was, I was loving the writing and, um, and just, yeah, really, really sort of took me by surprise how much I enjoyed it. Time will tell. And it might be, um, 2036 by the time it comes out. Uh, but it doesn't feel that way to me. It feels like I, because I do know the world of it and have spent a bunch of time in it, I'm, I really quite enjoy it. And I, I've been writing from Olive's point of view, um, his little sister, five years on from when the, the last book took place. So in a way, it feels like a standalone book with the first book as, you know, background. Um, and I'm trying to make it feel that way. I don't want to feel like I have to tell everybody everything that happened in the first book. Um, so yeah, I, I've been excited by it. So time will tell. I wonder whether I'll nano rhyme. Oh no, I'm going to nano rhyme a different, different story this year. If we end up doing the nano gang, um, there's Ooh. another book that I have in mind. That's more of a sort of dystopian novel that I might have a crack at. Oh, wow. Gosh, we've got so many exclusives here on this words and nerds takeover. <laughs> so two wolves, the sequel to two wolves has been written. Uh, is it going to be called three wolves, three wolves, one wolf. <laughs> Um, two emus was one, one possibility. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really yeah. like the title raised by wolves actually, but I think there's a TV show raised by wolves and, yeah. uh, or maybe teen wolf. That might be good. Teen, teen I don't wolf. think that's been done. No, that feels, that sounds good though. Teen wolf. Cause I mean, she's, yeah, I guess she's on the cusp of teenhood. So teen wolf. And what if, I wonder if she, she sort of maybe grew like hair and like, um, you yeah, know, play basketball. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be good. Drank a yeah. keg of beer, perhaps, or yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> just mull it over. See how you go. Yeah. Thanks very much. <laughs>
Okay, so we got uh, a sequel for two, two Wolves potentially in the works, and we got some sort of dystopian novel also possibly happening when we do NaNoWriMo later in the year, so that's very exciting. But in the meantime, everyone, go out and grab a copy of Scar Town. It's another one of these fantastic suspenseful thrillers that Tristan has know, been known for in the last few years, uh, and I, my daughter is reading it as we speak, and she is loving it. Uh, not as we speak, as we speak, but she's, you know, when she comes home from school, she reads it. <laughs> Are you using money as a bookmark? Though? I'm using money as a bookmark. Yes. That's just how good I'm going. so much cash. That that's just cash. What's the, what, what, what? No, it's, it's I've it's got, a, this it's is a hundred, but this is, this is how popular Scar Town is. It's being read by two people at once. Money is a bookmark about a third of the way in, uh, because you know, we're just high rollers here and <laughs> a life be in it bookmark. <laughs> it's really? two thirds of the way in. That's um, amazing. yeah, it's a, it's. Can I just say how well themed that is? Because I mean, the the money that they find in this house is such a big part of it. And then life be in it is the kind of eighties thing, and this feels a bit like my kind of late eighties, um, kind of early teenhood. Um, they're incredibly well themed. Who themes their? Book yeah, no, that was all. That was all very much well thought through by myself for sure. There's <laughs> a lot of thought that goes into bookmarks in this house. Don't worry about that. Um, so yeah, no, we're loving it. I think everyone who picks it up will love it. Uh, Tristan. Thanks so much for sharing all your insights and all your thoughts and giving us a little bit of background on Scar Town. And we wish you all the very best with it. Thank you, mate. And I'll see you in November. And I can't wait to see what you're going to be writing too. I can't wait to work that out myself. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Tristan. See you, mate.